It may be invisible to some or ever present to others, but trauma entangles us all. Welcome to Traumatize, brought to you by Network for Victim Recovery of DC. Traumatize is a podcast that creates space and conversations to untangle the societal knots that keep us from addressing trauma after crime. For you, we want this podcast to be an experience, one where you leave understanding how you can be a crossing point to minimize the deeply painful and costly consequences of trauma, no matter who you are. Welcome back to Traumatize, where we believe trauma is a common thread of the human connection. I'm Bridget Stumpf, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindsay Silverberg. So far on Traumatize, we have discussed trauma and the myriad of ways that it affects individuals and shows up in their lives. We have had a wonderful conversation about working with trauma survivors, and for today's discussion, we wanted to take a look at what it's like to work with trauma survivors within the legal field best practices for showing up with trauma-informed perspectives, and how we can share some of the challenges and triumphs that we have seen in this important work. Our guest today is Kristen Eliason, the legal director at NVRDC. Kristen oversees NVRDC's legal program. She has over a decade of experience representing survivors of intimate partner violence, dating violence, sexual violence, and stalking in both protective order matters and higher education campus proceedings under Title IX and the Clery Act. She is also one of the few litigators in the country who has experience representing survivors of a variety of crime types in asserting their crime victims' rights in criminal cases. We're lucky to have Kristen here today because she has advocated for victims of crime through policy advocacy and strategic litigation at both the local and national level. In D.C., Kristen has conducted CLE and pro bono trainings for attorneys interested in crime victims' rights, has given recommendations to the D.C. Superior Court Rules Committee and testified countless times to the D.C. Council. Kristen has also presented at national conferences such as the National Crime Victims Law Institute's Annual Crime Victim Law Conference. Without further ado, please welcome Kristen Eliason. You're doing some awesome stuff, Kristen, and we're so lucky that you're taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Happy to be here. This is wonderful. You know, you were one of our very first attorneys 10 years ago now, as we think about that. And as we just mentioned, you're one of the most experienced litigators, not only in the hundreds of civil protection orders that you've worked on to advocate. Thousands, I think at this point. (laughs) Probably thousands, at least supervising, right? I would say, yeah, that's true. So really using the system, the legal system to get access to safety for survivors of, of different forms of power-based violence, but also now one of the few folks in the country that has a lot of experience as a litigator around crime victims' rights issues. So with that, I really want folks who are listening to get to know you a little bit better before we jump into the topic of doing trauma-responsive legal services. Tell us a little bit about what drew you to public interest work in supporting survivors. Mm. So uh, when I was growing up, people would be like, you like to argue, you should be a lawyer. And I'm going to put this out there. Just because you like to argue doesn't mean you're going to make a good lawyer. It just might give you some energy. It just means you like to argue. (laughs) It just means like to argue. So first and foremost, I did not think about this for a long time, but I'm a survivor of sexual violence. And I think that has colored probably a lot of unconsciously my desire to like help folks who've experienced it. But when I was in college, my family lived in South Korea. I'd gone to high school in South Korea and I went back to visit them the summer and in South Korea. And I was at a bar 
off base where we lived. And there's a lot of trafficking that happens. There's a lot of trafficking that happens all over the world. But where we lived, there was a lot of like sex-based trafficking that happened where women would come to Korea from the Philippines, from Russia, from other places in Korea. And they, you know, come because they think they're going to get a job. They get their passport taken. They have to like, quote unquote, work to get their passport back. They have to buy back their passport, essentially. And so I was in a bar with some friends one day and there was a, a Russian woman in there. And I was just talking to her because like there were no men in there to like buy a, buy a drink from her, which is like how they did services. And so she was like just telling me about her horrible experience. And, you know, I was so naive at that time. I just like couldn't imagine. I just didn't understand like how that could be possible literally like 100 yards away from an American military base. Now I know a lot more about kind of all the intersections of like of harm that um, American occupying forces have all over the world. So I just remember thinking wow, this is like, this is an area that I think like, I want to help people who experience this type of stuff. So I kind of like put that in the back of my mind. And then when I went to law school, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was really listless. I thought I could like kind of study in law school the way I had an undergrad and that did not work. I did not have good grades my first year of law school because I just didn't understand how to like do law school. And so by my second year, I started doing internships. Um, I was I interned at National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. I interned at a few other places um, and started getting exposed to uh, violence against, we called it the time gender-based violence, but what we often now refer to as like power-based personal violence. And then I was like, you know, this is really interesting work and I want to see kind of how I can explore it more. And so I became a student. I got accepted into the student attorney program at Catholic, the Catholic University Columbus School of Law. And I represented domestic violence survivors in uh, I had an immigration client, I had some civil protection order clients, and I had a long-term custody case. And so that really exposed me to what public interest work could be. And while I knew it wasn't going to like probably pay me a lot, it really seemed to match with kind of my desire for helping folks get justice for themselves. So that's kind of after graduating law school, that's what I knew I wanted to do. Um, and so I had a clerkship and I got my first litigation job at a place called House of Ruth of Maryland. It was hard work, but really wonderful and rewarding. And I learned a lot. It was kind of like we had a really great training program, but then it was kind of throw you in and see if you can swim. I know Lindsay has the next question for you, but one thing I want to like honor and what you just said is you shared a lot about your lived experience and your personal experiences. And I think there's so much complexity mm. to how we view the world and how that puts us in different points of opportunity to do the work that we do. And that's true for people in this work as much as it's true for survivors mm -hmm. that we work with. And I think the aha moment for me, kind of like you were saying at the end, is the complexity of the human experience is why understanding trauma and having a growth mentality to evolving in your understanding, that's how we connect with people, mm -hmm. right? Is like, being open to how their identities, their lived experience, and the complexity of identities yeah. and how those are shaped by the world around us. I love that you teach me as a leader all the time about the empathy it requires to mm -hmm. really think thoughtfully about those complex identities and how that impacts the way people may or may not be able to show up, right? right? And it's interesting just to hear sort of your journey and how I feel like that's one of your greatest gifts that you give to like our organization and the community is just that the awareness of that complexity. Yeah, it's it truly is complex. And I, I think, too, I didn't start 
really addressing my own trauma history until I was in law school and I had I got to go to free therapy because the the uh, counseling program at the undergraduate campus at Catholic had like you know the the folks who were getting their social work degrees did counseling um, and that's I didn't really start addressing how my how my trauma just showed up in my life every day. Um, even if like in my mind, it wasn't, you know, there are, there are survivors who go on to do advocacy and legal work for survivors. And that is, they talk about their trauma constantly, which is a thing. That's just not what I do. So I didn't really kind of think about like how that kind of putting it in the back of my mind and not addressing it was impacting my work and impacting my personal life. And, um, so it, it also thinking about it is helpful to me to know that like, not every survivor of trauma is going to immediately want counseling or immediately want supportive services, but having those options is really important. And I think back to when I was in college and experienced sexual violence, I didn't really know what resources were available. It like happened early on when I was a freshman. A lot of my friends didn't really understand. And so it like really wasn't until I was later in college where I, I did a peer education program called Every Two Minutes where I like was like, oh, like there are resources. I just didn't know that there were resources. And so that I think has been a big motivation for me is making sure that my clients understand, like even finding us is a gift, I feel like for us, right? That they have found us. And I'm so, I feel so privileged when our clients come to us, but making them feel like they have choices, but also trying to give them choices that fit into their life. And I think that is probably one of the biggest things I've learned over my career since the first time I worked with a survivor in 2008 was that like you have, like you can't just be like, here's the options, pick one. It's really like, here are some options. Let's talk about how they fit in and with what you need right now. I will also say uh, doing the legal clinic and if there's students listening to this, law students, people interested in going to law school, if like, even if you don't think you want to be a litigator, going to a law school that has a legal clinic and doing that work is it, it molded me, right? I mean, eventually I figured I didn't want to do family law. I wanted to kind of focus on other types of uh, law that folks who experience harm might need. But we had kind of a few professors, but the professor that supervised my daily work, Lisa Martin, was really um, instrumental in kind of teaching me how to be patient and teaching me how to uh, work with my clients and understand that like, even if I, as a litigator, I'm like, we got to do all these, we got to file this motion right now. Like you have to kind of make sure that you're balancing your desire to, to do what you think is justice for the client with like what they actually want. You were just mentioning one of Bridget's favorite topics, which is pacing. Um, oh. And I don't know that we've talked about it yet on the podcast, but um, it sounds like your professors, your professor, Lisa Martin, mm -hmm. uh, taught you the beauty of pacing and yeah. giving you the time to actually do that with clients. And yeah. uh, maybe we'll dive into that. And later. that's like legal clinic. That's the, the gift of legal clinic for, for most legal clinics is you, you only have a handful of clients and that class takes up most of your week. So you have the space to really set that foundation. Yeah. So one of the things that switching gears a little bit to talk about crime victims rights, I had the privilege of sitting in the same office with Kristen for many years and <laughs> ditto. One of the things that I love so much about that experience was getting to actually, not only are you an incredible litigator, right? Like just awesome. Oh, yeah. But Thanks. you are such a good advocate. And I think one of the benefits of being in a physical space with other people who are doing this work is getting to hear 
how they talk, mm. really understanding um, the ways in which you provide options that fit a client's life, empower them. And it, it was it was I loved listening to you on the phone because the way that you engaged with clients was just like space in mutual power. Mm. Right. You were able to give clients the time and space to talk about what they needed to talk about the options, explain it in such a way that I like. It was, it's just Aww. beauty to listen to. Um, so I definitely right miss that about, about being in person. <laughs> I don't miss a lot of other things, like commuting, but tell, tell us a little bit more about how you gained that experience as a crime victim's rights lawyer, <laughs> given that there are a hundred, maybe. Yeah. Well, well, so truly, so looking back on it, I, when I was at my first litigation job in Maryland, we did civil we did protection orders and like related contempt proceedings when someone violates a protection order. Um, but I had a lot of clients who either had been thrust into the criminal legal system or were interested in pursuing a criminal case against the person who harmed them. And most of my clients were domestic violence, like 99% were domestic violence survivors. And I had a handful of like dating violence survivors, but that was the population that we were kind of funded to serve. And I it's like I had a colleague who was like, sometimes you just got to call the prosecutor up and yell at them. And I remember being like, what? Because prosecutors were this like untouchable pillar of the criminal, quote, justice system that like, what do you mean? And then like randomly one day I was in court and one of my law school classmates was a prosecutor. And I was like, OK, they're just real. They're real normal people. But that was how she when she had a client who wanted a, an outcome in the criminal legal system. She would just like call and be like, you know, but we, we weren't funded and I didn't know anything. I didn't, I didn't know at the time in Maryland, you could represent crime victims in criminal cases. And I was in court every, literally every single day, except for weekends, every single day I was in court. So I just kind of thought that criminal crime victims rights representation was crime victims rights advocacy. Both are very important, but they are different in a lot of ways. Right. But also at that time in my mind, I did, I still had not it's taken a long time, but I still hadn't arrived to the place I am now that the understanding that the, and I think we'll talk about this probably later, but that the criminal legal system is not what we are told it is when we're raised in society, right? So I didn't have the tools to talk with my clients about like the the real, the potential outcomes of if they, if they desired a criminal legal uh, case to go forward, if they desired a prosecution, what that would mean for them and, and managing expectations. So uh, when I saw the opportunity at, at NVRDC, I remember just being like, you know, I've litigated hundreds and hundreds of these cases at this point. I want to try some other things. And I saw that NVRDC was doing this crime victims' rights and working on campuses, doing Title IX and Cleary work. I remember I had printed out the Crime Victims' Rights Act and I brought and I had like read it that day and I brought it out and you were asking me questions and I was like frantically looking through the statute. But that was the first time I'd ever really like learned that that crime victims could have an attorney. And so over the years at NVRDC, that has really just informed my practice working, honestly, Bridget, like you informed all of my practice working with you and Matt, but also Lindsay working with you and other folks who you weren't litigating, but you were informing what I was doing all of the time, right? Um, not just because you have your criminal justice degree background, but because of the way you work with clients. And it really helped me kind of evolve from this like this person harmed you. They have to be arrested. They have to go to prison to really understanding that like one, that that system is just not where we should be as a country, as a society anyway, but two, not everybody wants that. And even if they do, they need to know that out of every like thousand sexual assaults, only 330 are reported out of that. Only like 50 
get charged out of that. Only 25 get, it's like something, you know, it's like small, smaller number of like cases that actually get prosecuted. And then the, the defendant is incarcerated. And then we know statistically they don't get incarcerated for, for very long. And so for folks who come into this and that's their, they've been told law and order SVU. I love Mariska Hardigay, like love, love, love. But that show tells people like, this is justice. This is what justice looks like. And you're going to get it. And the police are going to fight for you. And the prosecutor is going to fight for you. And this person's going to go to jail or prison for forever. And uh, first of all, a lot of our clients don't necessarily even want that. A lot of survivors don't want that, but they don't know about other options. And a lot of those options don't exist yet in a lot of places, which is why I'm really grateful that we as an organization are exploring and working with other organizations with folks who have lived experience and folks who are experts in areas like restorative justice, alternative dispute resolution, those types of things, because yeah. So, so I think over time, I still zealously advocate for what my clients want. I'm ethically required to, but also like morally, that's what I would do, right? Regardless of what they want in a criminal legal case, if they want the person to go to prison, then I'm going to help empower them to like, you know, and advocate for them and litigate to, to make that happen. Even if it, kind of, I have my own internal conflicts about that. But I will say over my time at MVRDC, I've seen that as we've been able to provide clients with more options, I see, and I think as a society, we are seeing like this shift in people's desire for justice and what justice looks like. And so clients maybe 10 years ago of specific identities, like let's say I was working with a, a white middle-class woman 10 years ago who like in her mind justice was sending the person who harmed her to prison I might work with a white middle-class woman now who says I don't I don't believe in our criminal legal system or I know that this is just going to perpetuate more harm and so I've also seen a shift I think in a lot of my my clients but I've seen a shift in in our community of folks who do who work with folks with lived experiences where we're looking for alternatives for for this system that really our clients have very little control over the outcome, um, no matter how hard I litigate, right? Or the outcome, even if it's ultimately going to get them what they want, if the path there means a lot of additional harm or re-traumatization, then maybe that's not what they want to want to do. So my work started as like, you know, calling the prosecutors and sometimes yelling at them, sometimes begging them to now really trying to have professional relationships with the prosecutors so that they listen to my clients' desires, but also recognizing that like sometimes I'm going to have clients who don't want to testify or who don't want to have that, that system at all. And so my crime victims' rights work is not just what I do in the criminal courtrooms, but is like providing clients right with those, with those additional options. It gives me so many thoughts because in our Traumatized podcast, for folks that have been listening to us, one of the things that is both helpful and probably very hard is we're having these conversations. My brain starts like connecting all of these dots. Like, and I'm seeing this thread of what you're talking about, Kristen, about having trauma responsive lawyering, mm -hmm. like at its core. Yeah. And when we look at the best practices of how do you mitigate the consequences of trauma or unaddressed trauma, and it's things like you honor someone's identity and lived experience. You give them choices and options. You help them expectations that understand the system. You know, it's it's the basic, am I safe, what comes next? And how, when we don't know exactly what's what comes next, how do we lay out the possibilities and give mm -hmm. choices and options of how they might want to engage in those possibilities? 
And we use this graphic uh, that we can post that is kind of a snapshot of our local criminal legal system. And you see in just inherently how confusing and convoluted it is. But then when you peel back the layers of how it was designed, the individual who was harmed, the crime victim or the survivors we would often refer to clients, doesn't actually have final decision-making power. No. When we think about this concept of power, we're putting them into a system that does the actual opposite of what best practices in supporting trauma survivors is supposed to do, yeah. right? And so for me, it's like you all have both talked about, okay, well, creating a trauma-informed experience is shared power. We create that, try to create that with our clients. We honor their experiences, their identities. And then unfortunately, the only kind of real legal system that's designed to respond to harm is built to do the opposite right. of all of that. And so one of the beauties that I find in being a crime victim's rights lawyer, and I don't litigate anymore like you all do, but is that not only are you developing these sort of professional relationships to help advocate for your client's interests and needs, when you have an equal legal voice, you have the opportunity when someone's not that has more power, we have given more power to to prosecutors. To everyone judges, in that courtroom, has everyone else, yeah. more than us and our clients, yeah. right? But we actually get an opportunity to have equal access to be heard, yeah. and giving our clients the opportunity to have that ability to to be engaged and heard in the way they want. Sometimes that's actually the most meaningful part of a system that is not designed to give you decision making yeah. power. Yeah. And I think sometimes that gets lost in what is the value of having someone who's hearing you and believes in you. Yeah. I think we we see that with clients who the plea that's been agreed to between the defendant and the government is locking the judge into a specific time period or a specific sentence. And they know that coming in there and giving their victim impact statement isn't going to change that sentence because the judge has agreed to be locked into that sentence. But they still want to be able to come in and for some of them, they say, I want my day in court. Others are just, I just want, I just want to be able, like, this is the first time I'm actually getting to like say what happened to me. And I, we see that too with, um, with motions under the second look act where folks are, are applying for motions or filing for motions for early release. And we know likely that a lot of those are going to be granted for, you know, for some very valid uh, reasons that, you know, these laws um, exist. And so a lot of survivors know, like, the judge is probably going to grant the motion, but I still want to be able to come in. And I know that the judge can't just, like, make a decision based on what happened to me back then. It's a, There's a, factors that they can consider that aren't what happened to me back then. But I just want to kind of talk about my experience. And sometimes survivors want to come in and say, like, I agree with this person no longer being incarcerated, you know? So I, yeah, I think um, we talk about this a lot about rights on paper versus rights in practicality or rights in practice rather. Uh, and we see that a lot where folks, they may even know they're not, the prosecutor's not going to go forward with the case, but they just want to come in and confer. They want to talk to the prosecutor and hear why they're not going forward with the case. And I think that is really powerful to, to give folks who've experienced crime any sort of footing, I think is really, like you said, is really important and powerful. And, and it's just something that even though those rights are written on paper, we still struggle with every day, making sure, you know, I had a conversation with a law clerk the other day where the defendant filed a motion for compassionate release. And the law clerk said, well, usually the victim goes to the prosecutor. And I said, yeah, I know that's probably your experience and your law clerk, and this is new to you. Um, but my client has the right to be heard on this motion and she's 
through me going to actually file her own opposition. And the law clerk said, oh, you know, we're, you know, she asked me, were you a law clerk? You know, it's like, I'm new, I'm learning. So, you know, you might know how it was. And I said, yeah, I was a law clerk. And yeah, you learn as you go. So I totally get that. And she said, could you send me the statutes? I said, absolutely. I would be happy to send you the statutes, which are cited in my entry of appearance. And so I, I think part of that being able to have that power or those rights in court requires education of everyone who's courtroom. And not everybody wants to be educated because it it rocks the boat and, and affects the status quo of where we've been for hundreds of years as a country is, you know, the evolution of victims being the private prosecutor to crime victims being a piece of evidence. And, you know, everybody's just kind of used to, to everything. The defendants, defense attorneys, I don't want to say all of them, but a whole, you know, are used to like making plea deals that maybe are going to be really rough for their clients. The prosecutors are used to trying to get convictions. You know, it, it just, uh, everybody's used to everybody having a very specific role in this, in this play that we all play. Right. Um, and crime victims coming in saying, I have rights. I want to be involved is just disruptive. It's disruptive. And if, you know, in law school, I didn't learn about crime victims rights in law school, did not learn about crime victims rights. And my criminal law and criminal procedure classes definitely didn't talk about the inherent racism that is built into our criminal legal system. And we weren't even talking about how it affects people who are, are in the system as someone who's charged with a crime. We definitely weren't talking about it, about, about how it impacts folks who experience the harm. And then we definitely weren't talking about how people experience harm in, when they're incarcerated and all that stuff. But that's another, probably another story for another day. But yeah. You guys are making me think of a particular client who we worked with a couple of years ago, who was a survivor of sexual violence. It was a sort of unique situation in terms of what we know about sexual violence, right? It was a stranger break-in case, Mm -hmm. um, which is not the norm in terms of what we see. It moved forward in the criminal legal system, I think, because of the uniqueness of it, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, you know, the vast majority that we see. And it was fascinating because when you talk about having a voice and having the power to to for the survivor to be in that moment and share how it impacted them. The first time she was able to do that was at the victim impact statement. Yeah. And she very clearly said, I do not believe in incarceration. I do not think it is going to help this person recover from the harm that they've clearly experienced. And so it's it's interesting that we've designed a system that really um I'll say institutionalized the sort of processes and and took the humanity out of what people experienced, yes. right? When because when it comes down to it, it was something that she experienced that some other person caused. And you know, when you talk about restorative or transformative justice, the ability for a person to take accountability and apologize, we is, disincent- We actually yes. make that a disincentive in the system. Yes, yes, we absolutely we do. Absolutely. Yeah. It's such a good point. Sorry, I totally cut you off because I'm like, oh my gosh, Lindsay, that's such a good point. Like when we think about this ecosystem of restoration, right? Like when I hurt someone, the way I repair harm is I acknowledge it. I offer ways I might be able to repair that to my community, to the individual, to their families. I allow that person to say what's going to make them feel healed and heard and seen in this. And then the community that is committed to all of this sort of shared restoration supports those agreements. That's not what we build, right? We actually built something that was like, don't acknowledge that you did it. Definitely Mm -hmm. don't admit to it. Like there's a discouragement of healing Mm -hmm. in this system. And again, 
people have different theories and ideologies about punitive responses. We know in the data it actually doesn't prevent any harm that's caused through crime. Actually, the only punishment that we have found in some data actually um, discourages the act is drinking and driving, Mm. which is fascinating, right? There's been some incredible work done there. But when you look at like the types of crimes that we're often representing survivors Mm -hmm. in the system, those are not crimes that any punishment is going to have prevented Mm -hmm. from. It's not a deterrent, right? You're just making me think like we don't teach children to avoid taking responsibility when they harm somebody, right? Like when my son hits somebody on the playground or something, my I don't say like avoid taking responsibility and let's all sit down. We'll go through a process. Like it's just interesting that we value that when we talk about children. Mm. But at some point that that system flips and we've decided that the harm is actually to the government or like I think in quotes the community, mm-hmm. right? Not to the individual who experienced it. Um, and that we encourage people to disengage. So I remember when when COVID first started and a lot of folks were asking to be, um, we were having, first of all, the, the jail in D.C. is overpopulated. COVID was running rampant through the the jail. And so the court was kind of trying to weigh the options of having people be out of jail pending trial. And there was a lot of research that was being cited in a lot of the motions about how like GPS monitoring actually causes harm to the person who's being monitored. Um, It has like a really big negative impact. And I think for a lot of folks, it was like, no, like, like someone should be on GPS. Like that's, that means we're going to be safe as a community. And we know also in DC, the way our GPS system works, it's not an active system anyway, right? It's a passive system. But I think COVID has really brought to light a lot of the injustices of how a carceral system impacts the people in it and our society. And I think it's hard for for people to, because it's been so ingrained in a lot of us that like, you do bad, you get punished. And this myth that the criminal legal system is set up to punish and then rehabilitate is like, Prevents it's too. right prevents and when we know the Vera Institute Open Philanthropy Project all these all these places all these um, organizations have done a lot of studies and put out a lot of reports about how incarceration doesn't uh, actually prevent crime and in fact it's taking away financial resources from what we could use to support folks who experience crime and really invest in communities right and so you know I think there's this this no we have to punish people we have to put them away for forever. And like most folks who go to prison for forever aren't going to prison for violent crimes. They're going to prison for nonviolent crimes, drug crimes, whereas the folks in our communities who are committing sexual violence, for instance, are rarely even being reported to the police, right? Because like you said earlier, Lindsay, most sexual violence is not committed by strangers. It's committed by someone who the survivor knows. And usually the survivor isn't going to report that to the criminal legal system. And even if they do, like I said, the the likelihood that that case gets prosecuted and the person gets incarceration time is so low. And there's the complexity of how does that individual survivor identify and how do they do these systems? Like if I'm someone who has either experienced a system or had a loved one that was treated unfairly or I perceive this to not be a safe system because it's not for someone with my identity, I'm not going to report to the police. And if we rely on that single pathway to be the thing that creates community healing, we're failing, right? To your point about options. And I think there's the complexity of 
how do we design an ecosystem where there's so many options available that it meets the unique, diverse needs mm-hmm. that survivors have based on their complex identities and lived experiences? We know that just the criminal legal system, while it might meet the needs of few survivors, it's not all. We know that. So what do we start to transform and build and sort of how do we both look at the problems in that system, but also evolve other pathways and other choices? Mm-hmm. And then I think there's that sort of systemic education issue. One thing that I find really challenging, and I'm curious as a litigator and even as an advocate, like how you all have navigated this is survivors are coming in with a lot of those myths mm-hmm. and misperceptions about systems, options, choices. I should Do I call 911 right away? Do I call like... All of the ways that we've created this um, kind of rape culture concept mm-hmm. in our, like, survivors themselves have been taught to believe a lot of these misperceptions about the legal system giving just a sense of justice. And right. how do you, as the helper, do that level setting in your relationship and expectation setting in a way that is trauma responsive? Because I think that actually becomes a big piece of them understanding what to expect and what maybe not to expect. Yeah, it's it's something even today I still sometimes struggle with. Like, I don't think it would be appropriate, even if I wanted to, unless a survivor identified this way, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to talk about prison abolition with a survivor, right? Like, that's not going to be the first conversation we have. Because a lot of our, like you said, not a lot of our clients, but some of our clients, like, that is where they're, they're putting all their eggs in that that criminal legal system basket. So I think first by just trying to manage their expectations. And I, and I think... Being able to come in as a credible messenger, even if I'm the one who has to, I'd rather, I know my client's going to get that bad news probably at some point. I would rather it be for me than from someone who's not trauma-informed or that isn't to say a prosecutor is not necessarily trauma-informed, but like someone, I would rather have it be from me because I know that I have colleagues who can help in that support of the survivor. We have resources, we have community-based organizations we partner with to like kind of provide support support for that survivor. And I, and I just think coming from me, hopefully we'll, we'll at least have a, a less bad, a less bad impact on them than if like they're told by a detective, well, sorry, this is the way it works. Right. Or, you know, they're, they're promised when they report, we're going to get this guy. And then having to have that conversation of like, you know, let's talk about this. So I, th- I think a lot of it is, is trying to do expectation management, validating how the survivor feels and really trying to use our experiences to say, you know, I've represented hundreds of clients. This is usually what happens. And this is what we know about the criminal legal system. But like, tell me more about what your, your needs and your goals and your desires are. And let, let me tell you kind of how I think potentially the, the criminal legal system could, could meet that goal potentially, but that like it could potentially, but that it's likely not going to, or it's going to be a hard road, but let's figure out if that's something that you want to do. One thing that I, I get annoyed with, uh, is when a prosecutor says to my client, well, one of the reasons we don't want to take this to trial is because it's going to be traumatizing for you, or I'm worried it's going to be traumatizing for you to testify. Don't get me wrong. It, every client I've had, who's had a criminal trial, whether it be a bench trial with just a judge or a jury trial, it has been hard. And it's been a spectrum. I've had some clients who were like, you know, that wasn't as bad as I thought. I've had other clients who like held their ground against some of the best defense attorneys in the country. 
And I've had other clients who, you know, walk away being like, I wish, I wish I hadn't had to do that, especially when the outcome is the outcome of the criminal case is not what they had wanted it to be. So I get that, you know, prosecutors, that is one of the things that they weigh. And I, I appreciate that they're thinking of the person with that lived experience and how re-traumatizing testifying can be. Um, but I, I feel like you're missing part of that trauma-informed puzzle of, I have seen folks go through this and it can be really, really hard and re-traumatizing, especially because you're going to have to testify in, in detail often about one of the worst days of your life or days or weeks. You're going to have to talk about a lot of bad stuff. But if that's what you desire, I want to manage your expectations and I want to prepare. And and to me, there's always this kind of like hypocrisy of, of having, a, having someone, a government attorney say, I don't want to put you on the stand. It's going to be traumatizing to then when a lot of my clients, at least in misdemeanor cases, get put on the stand and there's no preparation of them. And so if, if you, if, if that's your, your goal is to not have it be traumatizing for the victim or one of your goals, then like, how can we prepare that person to make sure that their, their experience is as trauma reduced as possible? It's not going to be trauma free, but trauma reduced as possible. And to your point, like the best practices is that we ask, like right. we don't make the assumption that we know what's re-traumatizing for you. We say exactly what you just said. In my experience as a prosecutor, in cases like these, yeah. the vast majority go this way. There are these outliers. These are considerations. Knowing all of that, what's going to make you feel the most safe, the most heard, the most seen? And and I think that the glitch there is that at the end of the day, there is discretion for that prosecutor mm-hmm. to make a decision that is different than what that victim says their choice would be. Yeah. But the right trauma-informed approach would be to ask and say, even knowing that, my decision is this for these yeah. reasons. I can imagine there are a lot of difficult, I've never been a prosecutor, right? So I've never walked in those shoes. And I can imagine there's a lot of frustration with being a fr- prosecutor for a variety of reasons, um, especially if you're, if you're a prosecutor whose identities mirror the people that you're prosecuting, right? But I think what I often see, and I will say one of the divisions of the prosecutor's office, one of the prosecutor's offices that we work with is now exploring restorative justice for domestic violence and sexual violence survivors. And I Truly never thought I would see a day where where that would happen in the District of Columbia. So I'm happy to see that. But I, I think with a lot of prosecutors, there's this, they don't want to upset or they don't want to be the reason that a, a survivor is upset or sad. And so I think sometimes avoiding being direct and honest in order to not hurt the survivor means it's it makes it even harder for the survivor, right? Like saying like, I don't think I can offer enough proof that a jury is going to believe you, even though I believe you, is a hard thing to say. But a better thing. But a better say. thing to say than, well, we have an ethical obligation to not take cases forward. We don't think that a jury, like we could prove to a jury. It's kind of the same message, but it's delivered in a different way. It's and simple Brene Brown. It's simple Brene Brown. It is. It's simple. And I think about Brene Brown all the time. When I was preparing for coming on this podcast, I just, I think about the, Mm, you want a sandwich part of that clip, which I, I referenced the other day to some, one of our colleagues and they were like, what are you talking about? I was like, the sandwich. And they were like, oh, you mean the like getting into the dark hole in the ground? I was like, yeah, but in my mind, I just remember that like deer or whatever with the sandwich. Um, but I, I I see that a lot with, not just with newer prosecutors working with um, survivors, especially of sexual violence and, and intimate partner and dating violence, but also more experienced prosecutors where it's just, you don't want to have someone in your office crying in front of you. And I, I get that. But like, 
that's part and parcel of our job. And, and so I, I think, but also, you know, you're working, you as a prosecutor are working in a system where the parameters are very limited. And so people coming to you and, and sitting in front of you, the options that you have for them are often not going to make anybody happy. I think one of the questions that we had had like kind of discussed us talking about is how can you have a, like a more trauma responsive criminal legal system? And I, there are definitely ways to make it less traumatizing potentially or reduce that trauma. But I don't think a system that is set up to essentially perpetuate the white supremacist ideologies the, that our country was founded on is ever going to be trauma-informed, truly trauma-informed, because it's not based in trauma-informed practices, right? It mm-hmm. is based in punishment. It doesn't take into account generally, you know, at sentencing's often, you will hear from the defense attorney and the defendant and the defendant's family about often bad stuff that's happened to the defendant in their life. And that does, is not an excuse for their behavior and the harm that they caused to the survivor, right? But you hear like, all, you know, you hear all these things and you're sitting there and you're realizing like everybody in this room is hurting and this system is not like putting this person in, in jail for 180 days may get them away from, from the survivor temporarily. Right. But is ultimately not going to, to address the harm that they experienced. And we know that incarceration just amplifies harm. We know that the vast, I think it's something like at least 80% of women who are incarcerated identify as being a trauma survivor. Um, a significant chunk of women and men in the who are incarcerated in the United States have experienced some sort of childhood trauma, abuse, something like that. And so I just think that like there are things that absolutely we can do to try and, and reduce the trauma our clients experience if if they desire to engage in the criminal legal system or they're being forced to engage in, or they just think like, this is my only option and, and the other options just don't work for them for whatever reason. But this system is, is never going to be, never going to be trauma responsive. Like you said, first time someone comes in often is when they give their victim impact statement. And we try really hard to prepare our clients for that. We talk to them about the things that could be helpful for a judge, but we also are mindful of like, these can be helpful, but do you even want to talk about them, right? Like, do you want to write them down? Do you want someone else to read? Do you not want to be involved at all? Also, okay, if you don't want to give your statement for whatever reason, and every reason is valid, but you're concerned that the judge is going to think that you don't care about the outcome, how can we convey to the judge that you have an opinion about the outcome? But yeah, for a lot of our survivors, really the first time that they are interacting with the court or the court's hearing from them or the first time they're seeing the defendant is in after the crime is at sentencing. And for some of our clients, I had a client who it from, from the time that the crimes were being committed to her to the time of, of sentencing was like five years. I know exactly the case. You're right. Talking about. So you, you're going into court and you're seeing this person who, and like, and like we know for the vast majority of sexual violence, it's not a stranger, right? So it's someone that you had some sort of acquaintanceship, relationship, friendship, whatever it might be. It's so intense and and we can try our best to prepare, but at the end of the day, it's it's not a system that's really set up to to help anybody heal. But it puts such a fine point on the role that both you and Lindsay play in the mm-hmm. community, which is when we know survivors may choose or may even not have a choice, but are engaging in systems that are not set up to be trauma responsive, the role that you you and your teams play becomes so much more important yeah. because those secondary support systems are the places where you feel validated and heard and seen. The point that like for me, 
really ties to the other episodes that we've had here is that we do not have a trauma responsive society. No. We're uncomfortable with talking about trauma, even with people having emotions. To your point about <laughs> prosecutors not wanting folks in front of them to cry, like we teach people that having in the United States, that's not true of other cultures, right? But like having an emotional response outside of what we've deemed okay is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Like we get uncomfortable when people cry. Yeah. We don't know how to hold space for trauma because nobody teaches us. And the piece that I think is so important, right, when we talk about so much is that trauma, unfortunately, is a shared experience. Yes. People experience all sorts of trauma. Like Every person that has showed up in this conversation since the beginning has shared personal connections with suffering. Mm -hmm. And all we're doing is isolating folks from their ability to connect. And if we don't set up trauma responsive schools, right, we know Mm -hmm. that the school to prison pipeline is a real thing Mm -hmm. for certain for certain kids. We don't have a system that's responsive when somebody does experience harm. Like, how are we surprised that nobody knows how to deal with it? Right. Um, we, we don't even have our, our criminal legal system isn't even accessible. Like to, right. before we can get to trauma responsive, like, right. you know, if you're limited English proficient or you, you don't speak English, if you have a disability variety, like it's just not, it's not even accessible. If you live in a rural area, you live in a rural area, transportation, or if you live in, uh, you know, one part of DC where the only transportation you have are buses that maybe sometimes run, maybe it's snowing and you're, you're never going to get to court. Right. Or you have childcare needs or you can't leave work. It's not even accessible, let alone trauma informed, right? Like, yeah. and it's so paternalistic and, uh, and this will be like a glass platform, but also like, not only does it further white supremacy, it also is hand in hand with capitalism, which we also know white supremacy is hand in hand in capitalism, but it's hand in hand with capitalism. And there are a lot of reasons that keeping people incarcerated are financially beneficial to to this country. We know that like, it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz, right? What we see, what beh- what's behind the curtain is very different than like what we're being told on TV and in the media. And if we want to be trauma responsive and, and trauma informed care is like such a buzzword nowadays, right? And it's important, but it's such a buzzword. And I think you can't be like, we're going to be trauma informed with really starting to think about like, why does, what causes trauma and why does trauma exist, right? Like, like, how are we investing in communities so that that kids have safe places to play and go to school so that, you know, the Washington City paper, I think it was Washington City paper, interviewed a bunch of youth in D.C. about kind of what they want and what they need. And so many of those youth were like, it's not safe to leave my house because there's shootings that happen. And it's not just anymore one area of D.C., right? It's happening all over our city. Or I think one of the youth said, there are like no trees in his neighborhood and the rec center hasn't been, it's been in like, you know, it hasn't been open for years. This is so crazy. NPR just did an article where I think it was Portland. It was in the Pacific Northwest reduced gun violence by over like 50% by putting in trees, greenery and speed bumps in a community. Mm. It was like, literally if you just humanize the environment, you invest in human beings, you know, That's a great segue into our exit exchange, which is me asking, I'm going to ask both of you, I'm going to do two for Chris and one for Lindsay. These are rapid fire questions that folks can submit, mm. um, can send in to, to bring our audience into the conversation with us. So first one for Kristen, if you could wave a magic wand 
and government attorneys that are tasked with prosecuting criminal offenses, if you could give them one piece of information to be more trauma responsive, what would that suggestion to them be? Really do the deep work of learning why the system that they are part of will never truly meet the needs of the survivors that they interact with and to kind of reflect on, on their engagement in the system. Yeah. I I think reflecting on it and addressing their own internal biases and their own internal, if they have it, savior complexes, I think, but really reflecting on, and that's hard when your employer is the person doing the harm and you're part of that harmful system, right? Really reflecting on kind of like why they're doing that work and how they can advocate not for high statistical outcomes, but really advocate for impact that, I guess, I don't know if you can do this, but like less desire on, on conviction rates and more desire on what crime victims want. Healing. Healing. Even if like they can't give the crime victim what they want, at least trying to have that conversation and understand why the survivor might want that. Because I think coming from that place of like, no, I know we can't, we can't do that for you. Instead of saying, tell me what you want. Okay. I, I, I hear you. Here's what I can do. And here are the limitations of the system that we're in. And I think having that honest internal conversation so that they can have those honest conversations with the folks that walk through their doors or come through their doors rather. Yeah. Yeah. Lindsay, what would you want other public interest lawyers or folks that are intersecting with survivors through a a litigation lens to know about the value of having an advocate on their team? Mm -hmm. Love it. Especially in the criminal legal system. I mean, one, it allows them to focus on the legal goal that the survivor might have. But I also think having an advocate probably in a lot of ways helps humanize the experience because our jobs as advocates are to be there to walk in in that journey with the survivor, um, as sort of cheesy as that sounds, and to really give them choice and options. And so I think in some ways we're a really good reminder that uh, we're always trying to center the survivor's experience, no matter what system they're engaging in. And whatever the limitations of yeah. that system yeah. are. Yeah, that's a good. And so last one, I have a lot of thoughts about this one I'll try to refrain from, but if you could, you know, courts, judges, mm. coming from a clerk perspective, if we wanted to, knowing that the system right now exists as it exists, mm-hmm. If we wanted to just make it a little bit better and we went to those who hold the most amount of power in that system, what is the one piece that you wish judges would do differently to create trauma-informed courtroom? Asking a survivor, and it's hard, right? Because defendants have constitutional rights, as they should. So a lot of that will influence kind of how this works. Um, But, you know, the right to cross-examination, I think... There's a lot of flexibility about how that could operate, especially now that we've been doing Zoom computer court for so long. But I think when a survivor or their representative is in the courtroom, every time acknowledging them to create that. And this might there are several jurisdictions where this might happen more frequently, but in ours, it's it's judge by judge. But to create that, hey, you have a place here. You have a voice in this process. I'm acknowledging that you're here. The defendant and the defense attorney get to introduce themselves. The government gets to. I'm acknowledging that you're in this courtroom. And so I want you to know that I see you and you are an important part of this process. And I think 
as part of that, asking a crime victim how they want to participate, I think is really important, right? Like we do have some flexibility for, for victims who are children, but like, how can we create a space where the survivor is able to testify in a way that is like not going to re-traumatize them as much as they're already going to get potentially re-traumatized, but really asking them kind of how they want to participate. I have felt very grateful to DC Superior Court in that non-evidentiary hearings are still conducted by computer court, but even ones that are conducted in person, uh, crime victims in those cases are still allowed to participate by, as long as they don't have to come in to testify, right, are still allowed to observe and participate by WebEx. And I think that flexibility, that ability to have their their camera off so that the defendant can't see them, their ability to not even look at the screen if they don't want to, I think is is just so small, but I think is such an important it seems like a small thing, but for a lot of survivors is a really a really big thing because they usually can't come into court for a variety of yeah. reasons or don't want to or some kind of It mix gets of to them. that like core accessibility piece. Like we can't even get to the trauma informed if we're right. not getting people in. Yeah. You know, it's interesting with the the courts. I think a lot about power and a lot of the questions I frequently get when I start going to my soapbox of like, well, let's mandate judicial training about trauma-informed yeah. approaches. There, There is a fear that if I show up as a human and I validate and acknowledge all the people impacted in the space that all often I get the question of like, is that within the confines of how they, you know, are conducting a fair trial? Right. And like, if we could just sort of have a conversation about the false binary that already exists in the legal system mm-hmm. for lots mm-hmm. of reasons. But how there is this this misbelief that being trauma-informed means you're not being fair or right. you're not being like, um, equ- it's actually the opposite, right? Yeah. Like you can be trauma-informed to everyone in that yes. courtroom. I mean, and we're, I think we're, we're used to our system dehumanizing defendants and dehumanizing or not even like dehumanizing, not, not acknowledging crime victims, right? So I, I think acknowledging crime victims, allowing them to participate is super important. But to your point, like we, our criminal legal system thrives on dehumanizing folks who've caused harm or who are accused of causing harm. We thrive on it, right? Like it's why defense attorneys try and get their clients suits when they come into the courtroom, because they know if they come in in an orange jumpsuit, the jury might view them a certain way when already the jury's probably going to view them a certain way. Given we know about press, like who gets arrested and who gets prosecuted because of the inherent racism in our criminal legal processes. But you're right. Like, I mean, what we know about the fact that a significant chunk of defendants are already coming with their own trauma, you know, how, how do we create those trauma-informed processes? There are, you know, I think some courts that are like getting there, like having mental health courts, having courts that are, are aimed at helping human trafficking survivors who've been arrested for Usually, like, the crime is the crime of prostitution. Getting them into a court where, like, the goal is is diversion and the goal is not to have them locked up but to give them support services. And so, you know, there is... The criminal legal system has evolved some ways to recognize that, like, not everybody fits into this. We're not just saying everybody's a, a quote-unquote, bad person. Right. We need to, like, throw the key away. Right. We're like, oh, well, you have this life experience or you have this, you know, identity and we're going to give you an, an alternative, right? And we see this with the ways the laws have changed about people who commit crimes under the age of 25, right? But I, I think, to your point, Bridget, I think it's 
recognizing that the folks in that room are all have lived experiences and are human. And, and I, you know, I, I'm sure that some folks who are listening being like, I can't believe you represent crime victims and you're talking about people who commit crimes or people who cause harm, like they're not monsters. But we know that like, that yes, there are absolutely people out there who commit horrific crimes. And, but the vast majority of people who are, who are causing harm or who are coming into criminal courts, how we are addressing what they've done is not going to prevent them necessarily from doing it again. And it's, certainly not going to cause any sort of major shift in society or heal the person or heal the person right has been harmed it's very complex and we will be having a representative of our dc office of attorney general coming mm. in to talk about some of the restorative justice yeah. work that they've been doing as you mentioned kristen there's a lot going on and this probably could be an entire season honestly on our um podcast so i'm going to take this opportunity to thank you for joining us for this episode. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it was really fun and it went super fast. This was awesome. It's exactly what we aim to do here on our Traumatized podcast. And I definitely want to give Kristen Eliason a special shout out. As always, we want to hear from those who are listening about your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Traumatized. Please use the hashtag Traumatized, T-I-E-S, and tag MBRDC on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. Woo woo. And please be sure that you subscribe, rate, and review the Traumatized Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and see you next time for more Untangling. Thank you. This episode of Traumatized is over, but this podcast is just one of our many resources. NVRDC welcomes all survivors of crime and their supporters. So please visit us at nvrdc.org to learn more about how to access our trauma education and how to partner with us to create survivor-defined justice.